70 plus. That's the number of agencies and authorities that report through New York State's deputy secretaries and into New York's Director of State Operations and Infrastructure, Catherine Garcia. That certainly is a dizzying number, but perhaps not so when one considers the vast impact state policies, operation, and its budget have on New Yorkers' lives and our future. How we solve the housing crisis, how we face our environmental crises, how we educate our kids, how we develop our economy, ensure job opportunities for New Yorkers, and train workers so that companies believe their brightest future will be to locate in New York. The state's tasks are as critical as its agencies are numerous. I'm Andrew Ryan, the president of the Citizens Budget Commission. Thanks for joining us for this episode of What's the Data Point, which again will feature a recording of one of our live events. Today we hear from New York State's Director of Operations, Catherine Garcia. She joins us not only at a critical time for our state's economy, but literally only hours after the $229 billion budget was passed by the legislature over a month into the fiscal year. Catherine Garcia was appointed Director of State Operations by Governor Kathy Hochul September of 2021. She is one of the most important and visible non-elected public officials in recent memory. She was New York City's Sanitation Commissioner, and she simultaneously served as the city's lead czar. She was interim chair of the New York City Housing Authority, and during the pandemic, she served as the COVID-19 food czar. Previously, she was chief operating officer of New York City's Department of Environmental Protection and incident commander during Hurricane Sandy. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And until next time, take care, New York. planned for it to be just the day after budget when I accepted this invitation. <laughs> that was my first line here. You know, I thought, oh, we'd have this, we'd even have a, you know, it might be 30 days after, maybe we'd yeah. have financial plans and all those kind of things we could talk about, about that. But hey, you know, time is, 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 you know, we sat there last week and I was like, I hope they passed before, I hope they passed before. Can you just, I've been asked this like 12 times, I told you yesterday, can you give us the one sentence version of what your portfolio is? Because every time I talk to people in the state, everything goes through or to you at some point in time. So I'm trying to understand how to describe it. And I failed at that. So help us out. So I, I guess the easy way to describe it is there are about 70 plus agencies and authorities that report into me through the deputy secretaries who are broken into portfolios. So on any given day, I could be talking to folks about transportation or something on healthcare or uh, goby fish that might be invading Lake Champlain and we need to call Quebec. Um, That's not on my list to talk about today. Yeah, well, we, we effectively kept them out of Lake Champlain last year, and so we'll do that again this year. Uh, so you never know what will happen, but it literally spans the gamut from, uh, you know, the Port Authority and the MTA, the big downstate authorities, to... Uh, the Niagara transportation to I'm talking to the health department and talking about Medicaid uh, with Dr. McDonald pretty often. Um, and then what's been in the news most recently is all of the issues with the banking sector, which obviously New York State plays a very large role in uh, and has been part of, uh, directly part of the takeover of Signature Bank. Um, and so we have a big footprint in that sector and then in some of the things that are uh, at the cutting edge. Where are we going to be on crypto? Uh, 
how should we be regulating that and working very closely with our federal partners? Well, that's good, because then I can ask you about anything in the world. It, yeah, I might have the answer, or I might have to call a friend. Nah, you know, <laughs> that's okay. People too often fail because they pretend they know every detail, and that's impossible. The key is to manage them all. So let's start with the budget, speaking of details. Um, you know, it was enacted last night. Let's start with um, the victories and things that went well. I just, if, if I can, from CBC's point of view, um, say that one of the victories, uh, the governor's leadership last year and this year again on the rainy day fund and reserves, accelerating those, putting money in, and on the wonky side, expanding the legal um, constraints to how much you can put into the rainy day fund every year, which is the only locked box, and how big that fund could be, because the state had a rainy day fund, you just couldn't use it. And so the governor's, you know, led the charge to change that so she can actually put the money in. So thank you for that. Yes. Why don't you start with, if you could, I'd love to hear two victories. One, the kind of stuff that people generally want to know about, and then the kind of stuff that the people in this room, the unsexy stuff that you think really actually changes things that maybe isn't covered in that nice list in the Times today or anything else. Uh, I mean, first of all, which, which people who are old hands in Albany will know is this was a great education budget. Uh, and it hasn't been talked about much because we didn't fight about it. Uh, we fully founded Foundation Aid. Uh, we found, uh, funded a lot of money for early college uh, and some of those programs and made really strong investments in SUNY and CUNY. Uh, I think everyone in this room knows that particularly CUNY uh, is the pathway to the middle class. Uh, I think on, if you look at any study, It'll say between that and the MTA, access to education, access to the biggest uh, labor market. Um, the MTA, the governor coming forward and saying we're going to have a long-term plan to stabilize their finances uh, and actually do something you know, horrifying like raise taxes on some businesses in the city of New York. Uh, that isn't usually, we could have kicked the can. We could have kicked the can. They had enough cash flow. Uh, but it was making a real commitment to its long-term health because I don't think anyone believes <clears throat> that the city of New York or even the region can survive without a strong MTA. Uh, there's also what we did on, on mental health. And so this was an in-the-weeds fight also with uh, DFS. I can't tell you how helpful they were in explaining to the legislature why we needed a change on insurance so that if you go out of network that you'll at least pay as much as Medicaid. Not more than Medicaid, but could you just at least pay the provider uh, what Medicaid is willing to pay? Uh, and so that gives access to a huge number of people to real mental health services, uh, and particularly for kids and teenagers who we know are really struggling. Um, and then of course, you know, I, I always love the environmental portfolio. Uh, yes, you will have to build an all-electric building uh, if it's under seven stories by 2027 and then uh, 2029. And we think that this will begin to make some real differences and it also has very strong labor protections in it, uh, as well as giving us the ability to use the New York Power Authority to do some of that construction uh, and make it so that we can live in a future with less pollution. So exciting. Chock full of things. Chock full of things. You identified, you know, spending on education, on mental health. Mental health is more regulatory, um, you know, and, and insurance requirements. So there are a lot of pieces, so, you know, I, I appreciate that. I guess here's the concern. Mm -hmm. 
So when we looked at the executive budget, um, we saw a budget that increased 12% in 23, 3.4% in 24, and 4.3% going out. Our estimate of a structural gap, because of course there are these temporary tax increases on business and personal income taxes, and then we literally are balancing 27 with money we got in 21. So you pull that all together, pull, pull that all out, and we have a 15 billion dollar structural gap. And then the legislature's proposals leave that leave that in the wind because it's 20 billion. So they add five billion. So here you are. That's a challenging dynamic. But when we see this budget and we see all the added spending, and we know that it's not supported. Um, by our revenues in the state, we see that fiscal reckoning kind of coming, that slow-ish train, but it's not so slow. And we can see it. And it's concerning because the end, you know, how to deal with that is unaffordable taxes that drive people out of state or massive service cuts that destroy our value proposition. How do you think about that? And anytime you're going into a budget negotiation, you know that it's a negotiation. Uh, and I think this is one of the challenges that all local governments are facing at the moment. Everyone's got a lot of money right now. And everyone knows that we need to be incredibly conservative going forward. Uh, and part of the gap that you talk about is that we did take a conservative approach to projecting our revenue. Uh, and assuming that we will have a recession, hopefully not a deep one, but that we would be facing economic slowdowns. Um, I think we're starting to see that across the country. Uh, as we get into this year, not surprising, with the continued increase in interest rates. Uh, and so you're balancing all of those pieces. But we also know that there were things that we needed to fund. You know, the MTA was something we needed to make sure that we were funding. Uh, education is something that we needed to continue funding. Uh, there also are, like, you know, the other big driver of our budget is Medicaid. Uh, and, and healthcare spending in general, and that is a sector that is incredibly fragile coming out of COVID. Uh, and the, the, there are some here. We'll get into a little bit of the nerdy budget stuff. Uh, one of the things that's happening in the sector is uh, hedge funds and private equity are buying big practices, which we have no regulatory authority over. So getting some insight into that was what we got passed as one of the Article 7s in the budget. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what's actually happening there, but there is big money going in to buy physician practices at the moment. Uh, another thing was one of the big drivers, and there's a hospital executive in, in, is that we are paying traveling nurses tremendous amounts of money. Uh, you know, on a small floor, you might have 10% of your nurses or higher who are travelers who cost five times what nurses would make. So even getting insight into what those transactions are and how that money is moving uh, got done in an Article 7 in the budget. Um, because it's important to know, because those are long-term drivers of what then translates in, uh, to what folks need on the Medicaid side. And we also are, you know, unfortunately all getting older. Uh, not I. Not I. No, no, none of us need long-term care, but that's the, yeah. that's the biggest driver of the Medicaid budget. I mean, this, and, and this, is, this is, you know, the challenge. I mean, this is not, and, and we at CBC try never to say it blithely and, and say it's easy, because let's look at Medicaid. You know, our safety net system is struggling. Our rates, mm -hmm. which you increased in this budget, mm -hmm. arguably don't cover costs. So mm -hmm. this is an inherent problem. And our education aid, 
you know, is growing. But this is the problem. We see that 15, maybe that 15 billion under the exec, there's 2 billion more of spending added. I don't know if it's going to be 17 billion. We have to wait to see the numbers. We'll come back to that. But um, we see that in your budget offices are conservative on revenues. You know, two, three, four billion, that's still a huge nut. And what we didn't see in this budget was any effort to address that, either on the education side, saying, hold on, we're still sending $3.6 billion to wealthy districts who self-fund what the state says is the constitutional requirement for a sound basic education. And Medicaid, which is really hard, but we need a long-term effort, but we don't see that. What? How can we be confident that that glide path, that there's a glide path there, because it doesn't seem like any of those steps are taken to get to that glide path. These are all hard, but, but what, what can the state and should the state be doing now that it's not doing? I, mean, I, I actually would somewhat disagree with the premise because okay. uh, on education, we weren't funding a sound basic education. We were literally found in court to not be doing that. And so this is the first time we've actually done it. Uh, and it take, I think that case dates back to the 90s maybe? Yes. Um, so we had basically failed for decades. Uh, on Medicaid, it is, it is something that we actually are taking very seriously about what does the future of healthcare look like? How are we balancing across all the delivery models? Because um, usually what we focus on is obviously hospitals and nursing homes because we have the most regulatory authority, it's the most direct payment. Uh, but there is a lot going on outside of just those providers now. Uh, healthcare delivery is changing. Uh, we need to be making sure that we're changing with it and also that we're getting, one of the things we're looking at is what does chronic disease look like and how is that being impacted by what we're paying? Are we getting value for money? I would make this suggestion right now, we are not. Uh, and how do we really drive that change, which is why we did do increased investments in Medicaid on preventative care uh, and also on getting people into what is called the essential plan and increasing the rates because having insurance that nobody takes is not terribly, terribly helpful. Um, and beginning to really think and, and pull together people around who are smart and think about value-based uh, healthcare to get a handle on that. Uh, and you know, one of the things that you look at is if you look at the safety nets, um, where they are struggling the most, which Steve Berger's in the audience, and I think back in the day when you were doing this, uh, you know, we are still subsidizing one Brooklyn uh, to a very, very high amount, along with all the other Brooklyn hospitals. Uh, I know that someone we both have in common uh, back in the 70s had to bring the payroll down on a plane because they didn't have Venmo or Zelle or anything else. Uh, and so it's been a constant challenge that we've just never gotten a handle on. And and now it's just getting to the point where it's too much money. We can't actually fix it by coming down with a bag of cash every no, time no. people get in trouble. This, um, this is true. Yeah, and this is why the governor talked in her State of the State about uh, the Commission on the Future of Healthcare and putting that together and making sure that we are uh, making those hard decisions. No. Well, we look, forward to, we look forward to hearing more of it if we don't fix this. And just to clarify on state education aid, we've always been supportive of directing the money to the high-need districts mm -hmm. to fund a sound basic education. My number was specifically that we actually provide $3.6 billion of aid to districts that already self-fund what the formula says is sound basic education. So that's really the question is, 
that money, whether it should be redirected or there's some potential savings there, because something's got to give in the long run. And, you know, because what gives in the long run, if you don't get ahead of it, is services or taxes. And I guess when, so New York State's a leader, sad to say, in out-migration. Biggest, biggest, and the governor's talked about this, so yeah. it's great to hear her. I think it was the state of the state she talked about this. I could be wrong on the speech. Um, leader in out-migration, total numbers, even more than California the last two years, because mostly because of out-migration of, of, of residents. It's always a value proposition. Mm -hmm. New York's expensive. We have to provide good services, good atmosphere, good human resources. So it is that value proposition. I look at this budget, and I look at those, quote, temporary tax increases, and I don't see a path to letting those expire. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to predict the future, and I would say that it is always a question that it's a value proposition. And I want to thank you all for your support. I know that you've been working with Amanda, who's commissioner of, of at tax, around what is happening without migration and really trying to get a handle. And I'm sure she's made you, taken you through her very complicated charts. Uh, we love that stuff. You love her complicated charts where she goes back and figures out where you were and 2017 and were you a New York taxpayer then and are you still a New York taxpayer and breaking it by income and age. Well, that is one of the things that was interesting is uh, the more children that we have with people who are wealthier, it gets very sticky to leave. Uh, if people are single, it's much easier for them to move and so there's actually somewhat of a correlation there. Uh, I don't know how we encourage well, procreation, we, but, 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 we, uh, we, but we also <laughs> saw the biggest increase during the pandemic of, I think it's 25 to 49 year olds who earned over 200,000. So we've got the wealthy who pay disproportionately a lot of services there's at risk because mm -hmm. of our high taxes mm -hmm. there. We have the value proposition for the, you know, professional upper middle class. We, we're struggling on all the fronts. Oh, I, I, one of the things that's true about New York is uh, that I think all of the people in this room is we live in the city. We don't usually live in just our personal space. We live in the whole city. Uh, and when we all got put in our own personal space, it was small. <laughs> um, which is fine if you're spending all of your time on the streets of New York and in restaurants and at plays and at museums. Uh, and I think this is one of the reasons why we saw that really high out migration and then it began to come back. Uh, it is slowed. It has not it's, stopped. Yeah, no. It is, Looking but it is at slowed. Data, yeah. It is slowed. Um, and, you know, that is all of the balances of what it is to live in New York. But this is also, and I know, I want to thank you all for your support, why the governor uh, was so set on trying to do something about housing. Speaking of housing and the value proposition, the governor came out with a great plan. I agree. All these different elements, production, <laughs> affordability, conversions from office, streamlining environmental review, transit-oriented development. I could go through all the acronyms. Yep. And they all went by the wayside. And there's opposition to many of them from many different camps. We, we, we found what can we do? We need to solve this problem. The governor's leadership is critical, mm -hmm. but obviously in the budget process, um, there wasn't success in, in enacting those. What can we do right now, and what are the lessons learned? Well, I, I actually think I'm going to take a more positive spin. This is the first time that I actually think everyone agreed on what the problem was. Um, we've had a lot of conversation about, uh, oh, we need more affordable housing or we need like a specific type of housing, not that we just needed more housing in general, uh, in all parts of the state, uh, you know, in our suburbs, in our cities, uh, to continue to grow because 
know, goodness gracious, we have Micron coming to the Syracuse area with a hundred billion dollar investment. I don't know where we're going to get where we're going to get the people, and where we're going to have where are they going to live, uh, and really being focused on that. So I would just start with everyone agreed this is where where the problem was. Um, having a plan that had a lot of different pieces did generate each person had an issue with something. Each legislative member had an issue with something. Some folks loved the idea of transit-oriented development but hated the idea of tall buildings in their neighborhood with the FAR change. Um, some folks loved the idea of commercial conversion but wanted it to be so affordable that you couldn't pencil out the numbers if you tried. Uh, and you know, they wanted to give you something that was just incentive-based, which we didn't think would actually increase Hasn't the number of anywhere. units. It has not worked anywhere. Uh, and just weren't going to take that deal. We'd rather go and continue to make the case for how we can generate housing um, and working across different stakeholder groups. So what is, what is the next step? I, so I, if I have to interpret, the lesson learned is when you bite off many things, you also agglomerate the opposition to each thing into a pretty heavy wall. It so was, if that's the lesson learned. Maybe. That was that was one of the lessons. Um, and we you, there were we were we got close on some things and then uh, folks backed away. So um, what's the priority now? Can we do anything in this session or do anything for New York City specifically not to be parochial? Well, we always like to do things for New York City. Uh, I am hopeful that we can do some things for New York City specifically uh, in session. We will see where we end up. Uh, but it also is going to be, you know, there was a lot of, um, I would say, some misinformation about how big your suburb was going to get. Oh, my goodness, you're going to override and put in, you know, 700 units of housing in our 300-unit town. I, I also think that the it's like, no, messaging we're going to put three. <laughs> the, the messaging was challenging because the override was if the target wasn't met. Yeah. And so that was challenging. And, and yeah, the so, simplifying, so, it's like it's a complicated plan, and that's why it was a good plan. But it, from a messaging point of view, it like pieces of it could get pulled out and turned. So do you have a specific priority list for session that, that we should be focused on? I, I mean, I think that it's really going to be somewhat about the New York City programs mm -hmm. to begin with because uh, those are the most timely. Though to be honest with you, I'm not sure even if we had gotten done some of the things on commercial conversions in this interest rate environment, those would have actually ended it's, up in construction. It, I, I, I think that one of the challenges on all building right now is uh, how difficult it is in this interest rate, and I assume we'll go up another quarter percent uh, at the next meeting of the Fed. So FAR, 421A, successor conversion. Yep, ADUs. Um, ADUs, basement apartments, maybe conversion incentive, what you're saying is hard. It's interesting because what people need to understand, speaking of messaging, is Innovation Queens Bruckner, without a 421A, we're not going to have that. all that. Everyone kind of saw the light. We need all different kinds of housing, and, but they decide to ignore the fact that it won't happen without these programs. So good luck to that. You know, we keep making the case. Uh, uh, you know, oftentimes they'll say, like, oh, it's a giveaway to billionaires. I was like, yeah, except that they're not going to build them 
without this, and that is an underlying challenge of New York City's property taxes, uh, of how they're constructed. Um, is, is and it was actually never an affordable housing program. It was actually just always initially a rental program. Right. How do you get people to build rental housing and not condos? So speaking of environment, let's switch if we let's could. Switch. Let's talk about how so you we love have electric stoves. How we love, <laughs> you know, it's 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 tough. We we can we can talk about cooking another time. Um, the CLCPA, CAC, FSP. That is the final scoping plan of the Climate Action Council. Yes. Said economy-wide by 2050, we have to spend around $300 billion. Yes. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we have a $4.2 billion bond act. We have IAJA, other mm -hmm. acronyms that'll lend some money. Um, the challenge that we have is that two challenges. One is everyone's pretending it's going to be free. No it's one's going to feel any pain. No. So the, no, no one's rates are going to increase, whatever. No. That's a little bit ridiculous because you don't spend $300 billion and then it's free. And if you have an illusion, you distort the economics, which is the other part of the challenge, which is um, we don't see a plan to how to get there. We see a large menu that's not prioritized by cost-effective strategies that doesn't consider, and I'm talking about the final scoping plan, that doesn't consider the economic impacts. I mean. A cost on a border business that can move across the border is different than a cost on something else. So mm -hmm. those kind of things. Do we have a plan for that kind of plan? Or because what it looks like a little bit without it is like buildings seems good. You know, fossil fuel free buildings seems good. Oh, let's figure out what to spend the bond act. Oh, we should do NIPA. It seems pot shoddy and not strategic, and we risk spending billions of dollars not in the most cost-effective way without that plan. Uh, no, those, I believe, are just the beginnings of down payments on, on where we're going. Uh, very clearly what came out of the scoping plan was that we needed to do cap and invest, uh, which allows the market to actually drive where the best investments are and uh, where people are willing to pay mm -hmm. uh, for the allowances on greenhouse gases. And so it is, it, is, it is something I think you would like. It is that, well, let's that, come back. Let's, that invisible look. hand wait, wait, of wait, the wait, market. Cap and investors, it's right here. <laughs> I keep on wanting to call it cap and gown because I've been going to school about it. Um, before we get there, though, is the state on, on a pathway besides cap and invest, which we think should be a centerpiece? Um, is, there, is there a plan to really have this comprehensive plan? Yeah, I, and, and we're looking at it from a... So you have the two goals. You have your 2030 goal, and then you have the 2040 goal. 2030 goal, I actually think we feel pretty good about. Um, the bigger one is the 85%. It really is hard to get to. Um, uh, part of that was the, was it the first month or so she was in office, was the investment in the two incredibly large transmission lines, um, bringing the, the, both the hydro from Quebec as well as all the uh, renewables out of the Catskills down to the city. Because if you actually think about it, upstate is incredibly clean. Like 90% of its power is renewable and cheap. You know, very cheap upstate. And then there's this big bottleneck and you have the city in Long Island uh, where you need to get clean power too. Uh, so those transmission lines were huge, will be huge for making it so that we can uh, really move in that way. And then all of the offshore power that is going to be the wind power coming into Long Island, uh, despite the fact that some people did not like us going near their house. Um, 
that's a side story. Things that happen uh, when you're trying to do big stuff. But this is the challenge. These are all huge investments. Indian Point decision predated it, mm -hmm. but we made the grid dirtier, not greener. We're not necessarily strategic, and that's, that's, that's the concern. Um, speaking of cap and invest. Yes. So CBC has supported you know, economy-wide strategies, market mechanisms, cap and trade, as, as, as we talked about it in the standard parlance in our Getting Greener report a few years ago. It's great because if you use those market mechanisms, you shift the money to the cost-effective greenhouse right, gas reductions. However, if you start to think about this as a way to raise money and you start to invest so that no one feels those market mechanisms, everyone wants more money and everyone then wants to give it away, that incentive to design a cap and invest system um, would yield greatly increased um, rates for the, for the um, allowances to emit, which would potentially drive businesses and emissions out mm -hmm. of New York, which means we won't have our greenhouse gas reduction on an environment-wide basis. Guess what? Air moves. So we won't get the greenhouse gas reductions, but we will get the jobs exported. What is there a risk? Because the incentive right now, when you hear the discussion, is we need to raise a lot of money and then give it to people so that they don't feel any rate increases. Oh, I think this has always been about balancing the question of affordability. Uh, and we did not say that we were going to, in this budget, do all give it all back and do nothing about the invest side. Uh, it was really about how do we make it so that people can still live in their homes, get to their jobs, uh, but it's not free. Like even when you start to think about giving some of it back to people to ease the pain, it's still going to be much higher. Like it will still be, you will be incentivized not to do things uh, that use a lot of fossil fuels. So we're going to get some questions from other people, and my questions just go on too long because it's great to talk to you. <laughs> um, but before that, let's just talk about the free thing for a second. Which free thing? All things. That's the issue. So we should invest this, and no one should have rate hikes. We should have free buses. We shouldn't, NYCHA residents, you know, because of the pandemic, they shouldn't have to have paid rent, even though there was a, there was a system for rent recertification. If people didn't pay their utility bills during the pandemic, whether or not there's a test for whether they were economically challenged, their neighbors should now pay for those arrears. There seems to be a movement that everything should be free for people. What do you think when you, when you think about that, just as an, as an observation? Because that is at times driving policy choices. And as an ideology, um, it's self-defeating for our competitiveness and our quality of life going forward. Well, I, I'm going to say that I think New York State and New York City are probably the most capitalist places in the, in the world, despite some of the uh, things that have happened. But uh, even on NYCHA, which you actually noted, uh, had a recertification process, but they also did not have access to uh, the ERAP funds that were provided from the federal government uh, because of the way the legislature had structured the local bill. And so this is just to deal with that. It is not the state taking on a long-term liability. It is to give them the money to deal with that. And it's like something that was also recognized by HUD, who also provided them with 100 and I think 50, 110 or 150 million dollars. Uh, and that they know you got to collect the rent. 
and it actually is one of the metrics used for public housing authorities nationally is are you effective at collecting the rent to get you know your grade A on whether or not you're a good actor. Um, you know, this is one of the reasons why I think we'll go back to housing for a second. It's like when you make things too expensive, uh, then people start to talk about wanting it for free. Because it's like, I, I just give up. Um, I'm never going to be able to buy that house. I'm never going to be able to do that. So your, your, your drive to strive to make it work um, is sort of overwhelmed by the costs. Uh, you know, I, I think the free bus thing, when we did have a free bus that I think that uh, someone at the Daily News actually loved us for, which was the Q70 uh, to LaGuardia, um, which we encourage everyone to still use. Uh, and we'll see, it'll be a short experiment on the free buses, but one of the things we got in exchange, because there's a little bit of trading you know, at the tables, uh, is we got an expansion of bus cameras, which I know that everyone who's ever taken a bus knows that they move, well, except for probably me, everyone else can probably walk faster than the Crosstown bus. Um, and that those cameras on lines where we've experimented with it have seen bus speeds increase and having better bus access, particularly as we get into like the transit deserts is incredibly important for people being willing to use mass transit. Um, and so there are some things that are free, but there are there also are a lot of incentives to keep people working, keep people, I mean, one thing that's true as we go back just to your tax and out migration, uh, one of the, we've always had out migration. I, more of it's going to Florida today, but it always went to New Jersey and to Connecticut. Um, we make so many people wealthy. We are incredibly good at creating an environment where people actually do incredible amounts of business and are incredibly successful. Um, and so that is the balance, is we actually have an economy that really does push people uh, to do some really great things. So it's a balance. It, it does. We just don't want to push them out. We don't want to push them out, no. So no. Um, some questions. Uh... And we didn't, by the way. We did keep uh, her commitment that we would not increase broad-based taxes, which you know many folks had many a protest uh, to try and have that happen. She did say it wasn't the year to increase personal income taxes. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that would be a great commitment to keep through 2028 on personal income taxes and business taxes and let those expire. We'll get on that path. But do we have some questions? Carol, you were quick. Go for it. Penn Station, yes. an area, a subject dear to the hearts of CBC staff and members since we, our office is located there. Um, as you alluded to, things with the commercial real estate are stressed, and that's what the Penn Station rehabilitation plan that the governor endorsed was based on, was renovating and having a tremendous amount of commercial development there. In light of the lack of need for, uh, mm -hmm. at least now, for more commercial space, is the governor considering rethinking her plan and perhaps taking a look at a more, a broader based kind of rezoning of the area that would include some housing and multi-use? Uh, so I would say that from the governor's perspective, uh, the general project plan for the Penn Station area was 
always a financing mechanism to get, which is the only thing she actually really cares about, which is the station. Um, and I have to say, Jenna has done a very nice job. If you haven't been down there recently on our section, he's made the, grand, the concourse much nicer near the Long Island Railroad. Uh, but the vision of having that very large train hall closer to the 7th Avenue side. And so the GPP was a, a means to an end. Uh, we now know that that means is probably in the future, maybe the distant future, though none of it was anticipated to happen that quickly. Um, and we did not actually expect all those buildings to go up super, super fast. So it's still an option for financing over the long term, depending on when and if the market comes back. Uh, I will remind folks that some of those actually are parcels that will have residential or are flexible for residential um, and hotels uh, as part of that. And so if that becomes part of what moves that forward uh, so that we can also see some of the parcels that are literally only single-story buildings get developed, we'd like to see that happen. But we're taking a look at what the underlying financing structure can be to move the uh, renovation forward because that is, we want that to happen now, particularly because with Grand Central Madison taking some of the Long Island Railroad passengers out of Penn Station and with uh, Penn Access, which is Metro North going into Penn, still a few years away, there's a window and we want to get the construction done in that window when we have uh, fewer uh, commuters going into Penn. Because, you know, it's, we have, so, we have a lot of partners, you know, New Jersey Transit and Amtrak, so. And so I'm not sure where that ends up, but can I just, since I get to ask anything. You get to um, ask anything, Andrew. Is, um, yeah, because you do all this stuff. Um, would it make sense for the city to rezone the area and then and the state just to focus on how to finance the renovation of the station and disentangle that since I'm not sure that I think that we are um, we will hold on to what the value add is for uh, the state at this point even if it is you know if we go forward and and float bonds they still got to get paid off for the next Yes, there has 40, to be a financing plan 30 no years question. 75 years like a long long time No question um, financing has to happen. We believe in that. Um, other questions? I, I see um, Jason pointing to someone who I can't see. Oh, Peter Hine. I saw the hand through Ken's head. And I never call in the back. I get chastised every time. So thank you, Jason. Peter. Yes, you spoke about the efforts to increasingly mandate electrification. Uh, wind and solar are obviously intermittent. Where exactly is the base load power required for a reliable electrical grid going to come from? Uh, so part of what I talked about was we actually have a tremendous amount of hydro resources and we actually still do, despite Indian Point, have nuclear resources in the state. Um, one, two, three, four nuclear power facilities. And also we get a, a bunch of power from Connecticut on the nuclear side. Uh, and so we know that that is part of what the mix is and what the ISO uh, checks to make sure that we have reliable power. And in the legislation that we passed yesterday, uh, the utilities have to also certify that there is reliable power uh, for the electrification of the buildings and the construction. Um, and so we are actually very positive about 
seeing that begin to be constructed. You know, one of the things that's true about electric buildings, and if anyone's as obsessed with I am of the real estate section of the New York Times, there was an article about someone who actually used passive building uh, renovation principles to do their brownstone in Cobble Hill or some ridiculous thing that's a hundred and something years old. Uh, and they not only have moved to electric power, but are using so little because they actually did things like insulate their buildings <laughs> um, and dealt with all of these things that uh, we don't think about when fossil fuels are very, very inexpensive. Uh, so we have a multi-pronged plan about making sure that we do this, but we do this in a way where we don't destabilize the grid. Uh, and there are off-ramps um, because of that, both in the NIPA legislation as well as there. Uh, if they can't certify that the grid is reliable, um, we won't take things offline. Um, we, we know that there is nothing worse than saying you're going to do uh, something that's good for the environment and then people get hurt by it. Thank you. Thank you. Rose. Thank you. And thanks for talking so much about the environment today. It's a priority for everyone. I noticed in the um, budget that there's language that now allows the state to build and incentivize its own um, alternative energy uh, projects. And I wanted to hear a little bit about how the state does that without discouraging private investment in those types of projects, because there's been so much already put in for these from private entities, and how do we not scare them off from New York State? All right, that was, that was definitely uh, a balance. So this is what had been called build public renewables legislation that had passed the Senate in the budget, we, and it more or less is New York State, besides you know, owning four ski mountains, we also own a power authority and about a third of the transmission in the state of New York. Um, uh, and so we really did want to make sure that in that legislation, so it's what the governor put into her budget, balanced that, that we were leveraging where NIPA is very effective, particularly around transmission, but having the innovators who are coming in uh, and bringing with them how they are going to monetize solar and monetize wind into the market, uh, we thought was a very important balance. And we think that we've struck it uh, uh, to protect the private sector from us eating the whole thing, um, but also uh, to allow us to fill gaps. I mean, it was really about where can we be filling gaps uh, in the market. What, what's the balance with the private sector? How, how, how is it protected? Well, we want, we what's want the mechanism? The, well, the mechanism is how much they're allowed to do. Okay. okay. Thanks, thanks. Um, Shari, I'm going to go for trustees first. Thanks. Hi, and thank you for giving some transparency into the budget process, which I think all of us know is not so clear all the time. Um, I, I actually have a question about casinos and the MTA financing. Um, it, you know, I, it's unsurprising that the casinos are going to be contentious and that, that even though there's a process laid out that it may get sidelined by a lot of external forces. 
So given that now that the financing for the MTA is somewhat hinged on the revenue from these licenses, what's the, what's the backup plan if the casinos don't move forward in a timely fashion? Well, I would say, like, we're going to make sure the casinos move forward in a timely fashion. Uh, you know, the RFA has been out. We've been on schedule. Uh, you know, Rob Williams is pushing hard to make sure that those, those happen. Because um, we are not... You know, obviously, if something changes, there's always a budget next year. Uh, but our desire is to make sure that the casinos move forward. Well, the three casinos move forward. Uh, I have no preference. I would just like to see uh, them happen and be successful. Uh, by the way, mobile sports betting, on the other hand, has been phenomenal. Um, we way underestimated the revenue from that. Uh, who knew? Uh, but we also want to have them be places that people feel proud of. Kent. And while we get the mic to Kent, speaking of transparency, Catherine, are we waiting 30 days to get basic financial plan tables? Do we have any hope that we'll get them before? We like to follow tradition, Andrew. Tradition? tradition. <laughs> you know, I, I won't sing, because um, that would be terrible. Breaking with tradition is sometimes bold. I will let Bob know. I, I, I would let Bob, I, I would appreciate that. Thank you very much. I mean, Bob I find quite, it like really sort of like, I mean, it's, you write out the numbers like in every appropriation, like it literally says like in letters. The, the appropriations total 800 billion and the budget totals 220. That's the problem. That's the challenge. Well, you know, there's lots of things in other pieces. Yes, exactly. Kent. First of all, thank you for your service. And um, if we couldn't have you as mayor, um, uh, your ego uh, uh willingness to serve the state is very much appreciated. Oh. <laughs> I'm not a politician either. Um, following up on the MTA, leaving the, leaving the casino revenue risk aside, I think the concept uh, or the notion that the MTA's finances have been stabilized by this budget is met with a skepticism in a lot of quarters. Of course, 20 years ago, that was supposed to be stabilized when we first passed the PMT. I think major cost driver of the MTA, we all know whether it's actual cost out of pocket or more importantly, work rules, is labor. Mm -hmm. Labor didn't appear to make any contribution to the package. Was that a missed opportunity in terms of improving service, cutting costs, and most importantly now, uh, making service adjustments to reflect the new normal in terms of ridership patterns? Uh, so I will say a couple things, and I'll get to the, the labor piece. Um, so you are right. We were supposed to have saved the MTA. I don't think anyone would say that uh, and they were actually doing pretty well until this particular uh, being hit by the pandemic and having to deal with the fact that ridership patterns have significantly changed. Um, and so that's not like there was massive mismanagement. It's like suddenly a third to a half of your riders disappeared. Uh, though it's been getting better. We've been hitting new highs over the last few weeks. And in this budget, everybody's paying a price. You know, the state put up money, the city put up money. There will be a fare increase. Um, 
we are increasing the taxes. We are doing, and it was a little bit from everywhere because everyone needed to be at the table. Um, labor would never have been in a budget uh, because that really has to happen through collective bargaining. Um, you know, there could have, the, the, the MTA could have said, oh, we'll, we'll save X from labor, but until you're at the table, and they are starting that table. negotiation right now, um, they also think they should get more money, just shocking. Um, that long list is long. Uh, um, and so I think that it, it, there are uh, thoughts and ideas about how to improve particularly work roles, unlikely to be, I mean, obviously not salary. Uh, I have yet to meet a union that thought we should ever cut salaries. I think that's not a thing. Um, and so it is up to us to sort of work on that at the table, to try and get the work role changes, get the flexibility uh, that we need to have the MTA continue to serve the function that it needs to serve for all of the public. Thank you, we look forward to supporting that as you know. I know, I'm sure you will. Um, other questions? Michelle. Oh, thank you. Hey, um, thanks for uh, doing this. Just building on some of the stuff that you and Andy were talking about um, with the budget and things that kind of weren't you know, that out there, one of them is, you know, you, you sort of mentioned quickly about the new taxes on businesses, but not that the governor's proposal was kind of a fairness proposal that went, you know, to businesses everywhere, and that the final budget was, you know, really raised the taxes on the large businesses in New York City. And we've been talking a ton about the MTA, and, you know, these are the same businesses kind of that were the people on the subway from the beginning, and they're the ones who, who kind of got hit pretty bad here. And then sort of going to your conversation about, you know, out-migration, I think you were talking more about people, but there has been this steady decline in, you know, jobs of companies for years before the pandemic and then increased during the pandemic. And then, you know, it just seems like a payroll tax on the most mobile companies. Like, you know, what is the thinking for the future of how that's all going to work? And obviously there was like options on the table. Uh, once we did not take the Ted Lasso tax, I think the governor labeled it at one point. Uh, the, payroll, the payroll mobility tax is actually pretty steady. Um, it's pretty like, it doesn't actually move around that much. And so if you're looking at what are your options, uh, it's not as volatile as other options could have been. Um, you know, this is one of the things, like when you talk about out migration, it always comes to mind for me, is like, then why do people keep moving here and why are the rents so high? So like, clearly there's out migration, but clearly there's all these people who keep wanting to be here. Otherwise, what we saw during the pandemic is rents actually did go down when people left, but they're not down now. <laughs> they are which very, Which is also a supply high. issue, which you're trying to work right, on. Right, no, the I'm other working side. on that, but I'm saying, we still seem to be attracting a tremendous amount of people who seem to be able to pay what I find to be a ridiculous amount in rent. Um, like, my son is paying, like, a ridiculous amount for, like, an apartment over a restaurant in Brooklyn. Like, not in Manhattan. Uh, I was like, this is more than, like, I pay. Like, little. So I was like, there's this thing that's happening that I, I, I can't quite get my head around. It's... We are both faced with the idea that there's a lot of out-migration, but there's so much demand for housing 
that prices are way, way up. So these these seem to be at odds with each other. I don't have the answer. Yeah, no, no. But I just I, think that it's an interesting but, conundrum. But a long run trend of a hollowed out middle will not be good for our oh, city no. or our economy, as, as we could all agree, which is part of why the housing you oh, know, no, it's push we, on all fronts. Yeah. Well, we could probably stay here all day, but you have the rest of your jobs and so do people. So I want to thank you very much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.